We come this morning in John's Gospel to the account of our Lord's crucifixion, death, and burial, which we just read, along with the resurrection. These are the central events of the Gospel. This is the holy ground upon which the salvation of God's people is wrought. And the Christian church talks and preaches and sings about our Lord's suffering and death a good deal, there is rightly a sort of focus on the centrality of this cross. Nevertheless, these long narratives of the crucifixion are strangely neglected. They might might be read at a Good Friday vigil, but even then, little snippets of them are read. And they're rarely, if ever, preached on. I mentioned last week that Catholics have their stations of the cross, which at least provide a way of reminding the faithful of the extent and the details of the sufferings that the Lord underwent. We Protestants have tended to focus on the significance of the cross, shying away for whatever reasons from these long descriptions of the passion itself. Perhaps they're considered too gory. Often, you'll hear someone say something like, well, the physical suffering wasn't the real or the deepest suffering. And while there's an important point being made there, only an unscarred and comfortable people could pass over these scenes lightly and quickly. There's something extraordinary, extraordinarily trite about saying, well, you know, that's not the real suffering. These are the inspired descriptions of Jesus' physical suffering, and they take up hundreds of verses in the four Gospels. There is arguably more material on this than there is on any other subject in the Gospels. Right? It's a famous scholarly trope to say that what the Gospels are, are passion narratives. Stories about Jesus' suffering with long introductions. Passion narratives with long introductions. And so we must not then minimize the physical agony. Right? The texts are here in all four Gospels. There's not a There's not a gospel that does not have an extended description of the details of the passion. And so clearly God then expects the church to love and to cherish and to meditate and to linger on this material. And there is a great deal of spiritual benefit in doing so, I think. Unlike later references to the cross, say in Paul or Peter or in Hebrews, here you are actually taken to the site. That's what's unique and uniquely powerful. You're taken to the scene of the crucifixion and you are made an onlooker. Here, uniquely in the New Testament, You, along with John and Mary and the women and the crowd and the soldiers, you are there at the foot of the cross. So I want to make three points 
They're there on the back inside page of the bulletin. Straight from the Apostles' Creed. Last week we saw that he was sentenced under Pontius Pilate here, crucified, died, and was buried. So first crucified. Jesus had received a a lighter scourging, but a still brutal beating we mentioned last week. It was part of Pilate's, you know, faded, ill-fated last attempt to free him, to placate the crowd. And when Pilate issues his final verdict, handing Jesus over to be crucified, we're told at the start of this text, the soldiers took charge of him. It's here It's here that he gets the awful, savage scourging that I spoke of last week. This scourging is done with a whip made out of metal and bone that shreds the skin and is often in itself sufficient to kill the victim. And according to standard Roman procedure, Jesus carries his own cross. The other Gospels tell us that he would eventually need the help of one Simon the Cyrene. He would carry the horizontal beam. The upright beam is already fastened in place at the scene of the execution. When we see this, there's a lot we can think of, but we should think that this is like Isaac carrying the wood of his own sacrifice. Like Isaac, Jesus carries the wood of his own sacrifice. He's the ram caught in the thickets, which delivers and substitutes for us Isaacs. Jesus carries his own cross through Jerusalem, the city built on Mount Moriah, the very mountain that Abraham ascended to sacrifice Isaac on. And he goes out to this place called the place of the skull. The text tells us, John tells us, in Aramaic, it means Golgotha. The Latin version of this is Calvary. That's where we get that word from. There, we're told, they crucified him. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians around 300 B.C. But the Romans perfected it, and made its use widespread as an instrument of state torture. I've recommended it here before, but I'll recommend it again. There's a little 70-page book by a German scholar named Martin Hengel, simply called Crucifixion. If you want to understand what happened to our Lord, you need to read Hengel's little book. You can read it in one night. In the words of one scholar, Crucifixion was a punishment in which the sadism of the executioners was given full reign. The Jewish historian Josephus, first century Jewish historian, said it is the most wretched of deaths. It's reserved for the vilest of criminals or for slaves or insurrectionists. It was virtually never, ever, ever used on a Roman citizen. Polite Roman society would avoid speaking of it. Cicero said that the very word, cross, should be far removed, not only from the thoughts, but from the eyes and the ears of a Roman citizen. 
So they arrive at Golgotha with the crossbeam. They would lay Jesus' already mutilated body down. His wrists or his forearms would be nailed with seven to nine inch spikes to the beam. And then once you hoist a crucified victim onto that vertical pole, the feet get nailed. And from there, it's just the agony of time and the weight of the victim's body. That does the rest of the brutal work. Eventually, the victim suffocates. And Jesus is crucified in the middle, in between two others. The other Gospels tell us these two others are criminals. He is then in accordance with Isaiah 53, numbered, publicly counted with the transgressors. And Pilate has a notice fastened to the cross. This was also standard Roman custom. For Jesus, the notice reads, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. This indicates, of course, that he's executed not on the charge of blasphemy, He's executed on the charge of sedition against the Roman state. This is Pilate's last act of revenge against the Jewish authorities. He's mocking them again. He's reminding them of their humiliating subjugation to Rome. If this is your king, your great threat to the empire, what a pitiable people you are. And of course... You know, John wants us to see the deep irony here that this is indeed the king of glory. And this sign is written in Aramaic, which is the language of the Jews, the language of Judea and Palestine. Right? It's also written in Latin, which is the language of business, government, the army. It's written in Greek, which is the common generalized language of the empire. And so the deep irony here is that it shows that the one who is the king of the Jews is indeed the king of the world. King of the Jews, but also king of the Latins, king of the Greeks. And so Pilate, in mocking the Jews, becomes an unwitting prophet of the Lord. The chief priests, they understand that Pilate's mocking them. You know what they don't understand? I mean, they understand the irony Pilate intends. They do not understand the irony God intends in the sign. And they protest to Pilate. They say, don't write the king of the Jews, but write this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Now, Pilate is a petty man. He's cowering and powerless before the crowd, but he's also obstinate. And insecure. What I've written, I've written, he says. There's not, not going to be any edits. So the soldiers, there was a team of four soldiers assigned to each crucified victim, usually four. And they divided Jesus' clothes, probably four separate items, some sort of head covering, a belt, sandals, and an outer garment, usually. They would divide those into four shares, meaning one item for each soldier. Jesus has already anticipated this, by the way, in the narrative of John's gospel, when he already freely laid aside his outer garment to wash the disciples' feet. 
to provide a cleansing that he knew would ultimately flow from this cross. You might say, paraphrasing Jesus in another place, no one takes my garments from me. I laid them down of my own accord. No one takes my clothing from me. I've already laid my clothing down. And after this, there's left that seamless undergarment which, for which now you have one piece of clothing and four soldiers, so they decide to cast lots. And this happens, John tells us, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. Psalm 22, they divided my clothes among them, and they cast lots for them, for my garment. I think it's important to see this here. The, the mocking and the very apparently insignificant details of the passion They fall out according to the Father's plan, in accordance with Holy Scripture. So in sharp, sharp contrast to these soldiers, near the cross, perhaps the inspiration for Fanny Crosby's Jesus, keep me near the cross, which we just sang. Near enough to read the signs. Think of this. Near enough to hear the groanings, near the cross of Jesus. These are some of the most poignant words in the New Testament, in my opinion. Stood his mother. You know what's happening to her? What's happening to her is what Simeon said would happen. When he prophesied over the infant Christ, a sword will pierce your own soul. You know, whatever she's thinking about, pondering these things in her heart, this is just the wrenching fact of a mother watching her son be executed. Right? She is, among other things, just losing her boy. And with her, there are three other women, including Mary Magdalene, who's going to appear later. But Jesus had cast demons out of Mary Magdalene. She's become a disciple And she's actually become one of the disciples who financially supports Jesus' ministry, as did many other well-to-do women. Jesus was received with great enthusiasm among women. Mark 15 tells us many women, not just these three or four at the cross, many women came with him to Jerusalem for this week. And for these women, at this point, This is just a devastating personal tragedy. And so you get then this very famous and touching scene where Jesus looks down and sees his mother, who appears, by the way, to be a widow in Jesus' adulthood, Joseph having disappeared from the gospel narratives. So Jesus would be the one who provides for her. In his absence, this would defer normally in a Jewish family to his brothers, but his brothers are not believers in him at this point. So he sees her there, and he sees John, the beloved disciple, and in the midst of his dying agony, he makes a practical provision for her well-being and for her future. Woman, he says to her, here is your son. And to the beloved disciple, he says, here is your mother. And John tells us from that time on, that disciple took Mary into his home. This is an extraordinary act of mercy to his mother. 
And, and what a gift this is to John as well, to have this woman as a permanent house guest, as a new mother in the Lord. So the death of Jesus, which is our second point, begins in verse 28. He's dehydrated. He's in his broken, exhausted humanity. And notice, he still acts out of this obedient sonship to the Father. Jesus is the Lord of his own dying breaths. He speaks so that the scripture might be fulfilled. He says, I am thirsty. And they take some vinegar and they put it on a sponge. They put it on a stalk of a plant. They put it to his lips. This is cheap, sour wine. This is not a sedative. And this is not an act of mercy. It's an act which fulfills Psalm 69, where the enemies of David, who's a type or a picture of Jesus, give him sour wine for his thirst. And so, receiving the drink, Jesus says, it is finished. And this also is no passive cry. This is a cry of victory. It means it is accomplished. It is brought to completion. It is carried out to the end. Just hours before, just hours before, in that great high priestly prayer in John 17, he said to his father, Father, I have accomplished the work you have given me to do. And it's with this, with this, that he bows his head, the text says, and he gives up. He gives up his life. No one takes it from him. He gives up his spirit. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished, accomplished, was his cry. This is the darkest and the most luminous place in the Christian faith. This is the place of fear and trembling and joy. Christian piety that gets one of these two things wrong ends up being skewed and superficial. Thick darkness, thick mystery, endless light at the same point. Because this is the doorway, beloved, into the unfathomable depths of God's mercy and justice. Tis mystery all, the immortal Dies. Who can explore this strange design? This is a strange design. We get used to it. We just think, well, yeah, this, this is normal stuff. This is a deep, strange design. In vain, the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. There's deep, thick, luminous, dreadful, joyful mystery at every point in the Christian life, and that's because at this center point, it radiates forth. And the Jewish leaders here, in accordance with Deuteronomy 21, they don't want cursed bodies left out overnight. If you leave the body out overnight, it defiles the lamb. So they ask Pilate to have the legs broken. This, this would prevent pushing up with the legs, which would give you the ability to breathe. 
And so, if you break the legs, you hasten the death. Death by crucifixion could take days. Sometimes it did take three or four days. If it took three or four days, the Romans would just leave the bodies on the cross where they'd be picked at by vultures. But they find that Jesus is already dead, so they don't have to break his legs. But instead, the soldiers pierce his side, bringing forth blood and water. There's a couple things happening here. One is this establishes that Jesus, as man, beyond a shadow of a doubt, dies. And symbolically, we're reminded that from this broken body flow the blood which forgives our sins and the water of the Spirit which cleanses us. From the broken body of Jesus, now raised, blood and water pour forth to pardon and to refresh and to renew and to purify us. Right? Jesus, keep me near the cross, there a precious fountain. Free to all, a healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. And these actions here, even after dying, notice, even after dying, they fulfill two more scriptures, John tells us. Not one of his bones shall be broken, fulfilling the Passover lamb regulations in Moses. And Zechariah saying, they will look on the one whom they have pierced. So John, notice, has cited, he's alluded to passages from Moses. I think the answer sheet, by the way, says Matthew. So if you copy the answers in advance, you're going to get this wrong. (laughs) He's alluded to passages from Moses, David, and Zechariah. That's, That's 1250 B.C., 1,000 B.C. and about 500 B.C., all in support of just seemingly minor incidental details of Jesus' crucifixion. Finally, quickly, the burial. Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, a secret disciple, now shows some courage. He asks for the body, and this gives Pilate the opportunity to snub the Jews one more time. Because the body would normally... If it were not a sedition case, the body would go to the next of kin. But in this case, the body would normally go to the Jewish leaders who would take it. And they would put it in a common grave, basically a dump for criminals outside of town. You couldn't put the corpse of a criminal in a normal family tomb. It would be thought to desecrate the family tomb. Nevertheless, the Jewish leaders would want the body, but Pilate gives it to Joseph. And he's accompanied by Nicodemus. The same Nicodemus of, ye must be born again in chapter 3. Nicodemus brings 75 pounds of burial spices. You know why? Because this is a royal, kingly burial. Because the king of glory is being buried. This is not embalming. So there was a garden. A new tomb. Generally, this would be a cave artificially constructed out of a hillside. People are not buried underground generally in this culture. They're buried in caves. And because it's a new tomb, a virgin tomb, if you will, it's not a communal tomb. And thus Jesus' body, which they place in it, will be the only body in the tomb. That means if it's missing, the absence will be obvious. 
And the location? The garden? You might remember what that sets up. Mary of Magdalene will see a strange gardener wandering around in the next chapter. So while the resurrection is yet future, I want us to see this. John thinks this scene is a scene of sovereign kingship. It's a scene of glory and victory. And this is something the church has always grasped. What can you do to snuff out a religion that sees glory and victory in this scene? When you kill its founder and you kill the followers, you make it grow. And the church has always known this. In the second century, Justin Martyr said, the Lord has reigned from that tree. And Augustine in the 4th century said, the Lord has established his sovereignty from the tree. Right? That, that Roman cross is a chariot, a throne. Augustine goes on, he says, who is it? Who is it that fights with wood? Christ, he says, for his cross has conquered kings. My favorite is this great 6th century hymn which puts it this way. That which the prophet king of old hath in mysterious verse foretold is accomplished while we see God ruling the nations from a tree. This way of seeing goes all the way back to the scene itself. It goes back to the crucifixion. And you learn there from a very surprising source in another gospel about this thief who originally only saw shame and humiliation and a fellow criminal. And yet some, in some mysterious way, in the depth of Jesus' stripped dignity, that thief has his eyes open and sees kingly glory and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He grasps what this wonderful little poem captures in just a few words. He, hell, in hell laid low. Made sin, he sin or through. Bowed to the grave, destroyed it so. And death by dying slew. That's the whole atonement. Let us then love and sing and wonder. Let us meditate. Let us linger. I charge you to read these passion narratives in the next week or so. Let us see in them, like the thief, a king. And like him, let us pray for the kingdom. For the Lord reigns from this tree. And finally, finally... Let us do the only rational, logical thing that can be done. Let us respond with the whole of our being. For love so amazing, so divine, demands our souls, our lives, our all. Amen. Amen.